0: Good morning, my, my name is uh, Adam Pelser. I teach philosophy up at the Air Force Academy. Um, some of you, I, I see some familiar faces from when I, uh, I taught a Sunday school class with my, my colleague, Lindsey Kirchhoff, who also goes to church here. Um, uh, we taught a class in the fall on, on philosophy and Christian thought, it was a lot of fun uh, to do, and I, I know some of you were in there, and uh, so, so thanks for coming back. Um, <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad to see you here again. Uh, that means it wasn't a total disaster. Um, uh, we're going to be talking about uh, temptation. That's going to be the main, uh, the main theme of, of the next three weeks. Uh, we we're calling this a Lenten look at temptation. Uh, but we're not just going to be talking about temptation, sort of the negative side of it. We're also going to be talking about um, strengths, uh, spiritual strengths for overcoming temptation. Um, and so, uh, so that's the theme of our, of our, of our next three weeks together. Um, I, hope, uh, I hope you all will, will, will be here for, for the duration. Um, I'm looking forward to exploring some of these issues with you. This is actually an ongoing research project for me. So that's what's really fun about this for me is that I'm actually working on this myself uh, as I'm teaching this class, thinking about uh, the nature of temptation and how we might uh, get better at overcoming it. Um, so if you would, uh, let's, let's begin uh, by bowing our heads in prayer and, and asking God to, uh, to help focus our time here this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for, for loving us. Thank you for loving us so much that you sent your son to die so that we might be forgiven of our sins, and that you are so powerful that you are powerful even over death, and that you raised him from the dead so that we too one day might be raised in glory. We thank you for this time that we have the freedom to meet together, to gather together in this place, uh, to worship you, to fellowship with one another, and to learn more about your word, to learn more about ourselves and our relationship with you. We ask that you would help uh, to enlighten us this morning, that you would... Help us to see the truth about temptation, that you would help us to see the truth about overcoming temptation, that you would help us to rely on you uh, for the power to do so. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So uh, one of the fun things that I get to do, those of you who came to my Sunday school class last time, because I'm a professor at the Air Force Academy, I have to start with a disclaimer to let you know that I am not, in fact, uh, necessarily representing the the policies or positions of the US Air Force, the US Department of Defense, or US government. Okay, now that we've got that out of the way. What is temptation? What is it? Do you know? Could you tell me? You could probably all point it out if you saw it, right? You know what it feels like, right? What is temptation? Does anybody wanna try to take a stab at it? Yeah. A desire to do what you know is wrong, that's, that's pretty good, right? I mean, we're done, folks. That, that's it. That's it. We can all go home now. Um, no, that's, that's pretty good. That's, that, that's about as good as, as just about anybody has done so far uh, uh, in the literature on temptation. A desire to do what you know is wrong, um, that, that's, that seems right. Um, sometimes, though, this gets a little bit tricky. Sometimes it gets just a little bit tricky. I mean... Sometimes you might think, well, what if you had a desire to do something that was good, but you thought it was wrong, right? Could that be a temptation? What if you were tempted to do something that was wrong, but you didn't think that it was wrong? I mean, is that possible? Could you be tempted to, to do something wrong, right? So somebody says, hey, this would be a good idea. And you go, yeah, that would be a good idea, right? I mean, yeah, that seems, seems like a perfectly good thing to do, right? And so here we are being tempted, right? And, and, and yet we don't necessarily know that it's wrong. I mean, is that a possibility? It seems like may, maybe it is, right? I mean, so temptation, it's a, it's a tricky concept, right? Um, but a desire to do what you know is wrong at least captures a lot of what we might consider the, the normal experience of temptation, right? Even if there are maybe some of these other kinds of, of, of experiences that we might call temptation. Well, the good news is if you're having trouble... Defining it, if you didn't come in with a definition, that's okay, because it turns out, um, you know, the folks who actually are scholars who work on this question don't have much of an idea what they're talking about either. Uh, So here's a quote from uh, a group of psychologists who wrote an article called Moments of Weakness, the Implicit Context Dependencies of Temptations. They say, despite considerable research suggesting the importance of temptations and the challenges people face in overcoming them, uh, the exact definition of a temptation remains elusive. Right? So they, they're not even sure, right? They, they're pretty sure they can pick out instances of it and say, okay, let's, let's examine that, right? Um, but but exactly what it is uh, that would define this concept and tie all these different experiences together remains somewhat elusive even to the psychologists uh, who were working on this subject. And um, alas, philosophers like me haven't been much help. So uh, here's, here's where my research project comes in. I'm trying to actually uh, help us figure that out, but I'm not going to bore you with that uh, this morning. Instead, I'm going to look at somebody um, much wiser. Uh, but before I do, I mean one one thing that we might distinguish is uh, subjective versus objective temptation. So um, this is a distinction that I'm trying to draw, and, and I think that subjective temptation is is the sort of the experience of it, right? The, the desire to do what you know is wrong, right? Where you you feel a kind of a tug to do something that you don't you don't really Think is what you want to do, right? I mean, you want to do it, but you think, but I really shouldn't do it, right? Or that's not really what I want to do in my deepest self, right? This is kind of an odd experience, isn't it? We're struggling with ourself. We're trying to control ourself as though we've got two different people within us, right? When one of them wants to do this thing and the other doesn't, right? But it's not quite like that, right? Because then that would be like one self trying to control the other self. But we really do think that it's just one self inside of us and there's something that we're, being, that we're inclined to do or that we're, we're, we're tempted to do, we desire to do, and yet it's the, the, the core of who we are, right? Our, our deepest commitments, right, go against this thing, right? And we think, no, that wouldn't be good, right? And so we, so we have this sense of trying to master ourselves, right? Trying to control ourselves, right? This is where we get this idea of self-control, right? We're trying to control this, this part of us <laughs> that's inclining us toward or, 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 or tempting us to do something that we don't, in our deepest core, want to do. Right? Um, you might think of Paul's language of, you know, I find myself doing what I do not want to do. Right? Um, of course, there's, there's part of us that does want to do it, otherwise we wouldn't do it at all, right? Um, but there is this sort of tension and, I, and that I think is what, what I want to call subjective temptation, right? It's this experience of being sort of Uh, at war with yourself, right? Um, In conflict with yourself. Now, objective temptation, though, I I think, is a little bit different. As I suggested, it it maybe is possible to be tempted to do something wrong even when you don't think that it's wrong. You're not committed against doing it. There is no pull within you, right? There's no internal struggle. You're not fighting with yourself. You just think, yeah, that seems like a good thing to do, right? and you only find out later that maybe it was really bad, right? that you shouldn't, shouldn't have wanted to do it. I, I, still, I still think that maybe some of those instances might count as temptation experiences. Um, and that's what I want to call objective temptation. Objective temptation is gonna be something like a desire to do something uh, that would be contrary to what's good or contrary to what's virtuous or uh, that would be wrong, right? to put it simply. Right? A desire to do something wrong uh, of any kind, right? Or a suggestion from outside of us that would encourage us to do something wrong. I think even one of those could be temptations, even if we don't experience this internal struggle. That's what I want to call objective temptation. So I, I think it's good to um, separate those. Here's a, a theological account of temptation by the Puritan theologian John, uh, John Owen that I think fits the objective temptation notion that I'm suggesting here, right? Anything that would cause you to do something, that would entice you to do something wrong, whether you feel any internal struggle or not. Uh, so here's his account. Temptation then in general is anything, state, way, or condition that upon any account whatever hath a force of ef- or efficacy to seduce, to draw the mind and heart of a man from its obedience which God requires of him into any sin in any degree of it whatever. In particular, that is a temptation to any man which causes or occasions him to sin or in anything to go off from his duty, either by bringing evil into his heart or any other way, diverting him from communion with God and that constant equal universal obedience in matter and manner that is required of him. That's a complicated idea, right? But I think we can sum it up and just say, look, temptation is anything that would encourage you to sin. (laughs) anything that would entice you to sin, that that would count as a temptation for you. I think that's a kind of objective definition of temptation, right? Where it's anything that encourages you to sin, even if there's no internal struggle within you, even if you haven't figured out that this is sin or that this is evil uh, or you don't have any, or you just don't care, right? (laughs) I I still think we might want to call that a temptation. At least John Owen uh, wants to count that as a kind of temptation. Okay, so we're not going to... spend this this whole three weeks trying to define temptation, I think we could, and we'd probably end up uh, maybe three weeks from now just as confused as we started. Uh, it's a hard concept to define, um, but I wanted to at least get some of these thoughts before your mind to get you thinking about, okay, so what is this thing, this experience that we call temptation? Um, could it be, is it something that we always feel as a temptation, or could it be something else, right? Maybe just any desire that would cause us to sin? There's a couple of different ways of maybe defining it, um, and so let's keep those before our mind now as we sort of explore um, what the Bible has to say about temptation, and also um, what we might do about it, uh, how we might go about overcoming it. Questions at all? Any, anyone? Okay. Feel free to interrupt me at any time, by the way. I, I don't intend to just, just lecture here. Um, I do want to uh, hear from you, so if you have questions, feel free to interrupt me. So what does the Bible say about temptation? So this is a little audience participation uh, part of the morning. If you have your Bibles with you um, and would like to volunteer to read one of these passages, um, can I get some volunteers? So I have how many passages up here? Uh, Six passages. Can I get a volunteer to read uh, Genesis 3, 1 through 7? Somebody want to raise your hand? Okay, go ahead and look that up. Thank you. Um, How about Luke 4, 1 through 13? The account of Jesus. Yeah, got that. Thank you. Um, Hebrews 2, 17 through 18, and 4, 14 through 16. This is a tricky one. Now you're going to have to, like, move from one chapter to the next. Um, How about 1 Corinthians 10, 13? Can I get somebody to read that? Yes, please. Thank you. And then um, how about James 1, 13 to 14 in the back there? And then one more, Galatians 6, 1. Will you read me that one? Okay, perfect. Yeah, thank you for volunteering, everyone. Okay, so... um, if you do have your Bibles, feel free to follow along. I know we're going to be sort of jumping around here. Um, but what I want to do is I want to have you read these passages. And as, as uh, our volunteers are reading these passages, I want you all to be thinking, what, what, what can we learn about temptation from this passage? Right? Um, what, what kinds of things can we learn about uh, uh, temptation uh, that might be helpful to us in thinking about how we might face temptation, how we might try to resist it or overcome it in our own lives? So um, start with Genesis. Yes. Alright, so what can we learn about temptation from this original temptation experience in the garden? Yeah,
1: she evil. I She took in what Satan was saying. Okay, she, yeah, she, she
0: took in what Satan was saying. She believed what he was saying. She didn't use discernment. Didn't use discernment, okay. Yes?
1: She
0: Yeah. Yeah. So she questioned God. She she asked herself, you know, do I really think God's telling me the truth here? Right? Maybe maybe what Satan's saying is is true, and God really shouldn't have told us not to eat this tree. Yeah. I'm sorry. Say it again. Truth inserted into a lie. How do you mean? Yes. Okay, good. Yeah, so there was truth inserted into a lie. There was truth that she would, in fact, learn things and in some way be more like God as a result of this increased knowledge. Um, and yet, that was going to be bad for her, right? <laughs> and, and so there was, there was a lie here, but there was also some, some truth to it, um, which made it yeah, seem, seem good. I saw a hand over here. There was something to gain by giving in to the temptation. That's right. Yeah, yeah. There's something, yeah. Something to lose. Yes, uh, certainly was that. But there was something to gain. I think that's. I think that's an important uh, insight. Yes. Um, temptation, presented choice? temptation presented her with a choice. Yes, she had a choice. Right. She, she. You know, there was there wasn't coercion here. Right. She wasn't forced into it. Right. That's. Uh, she was. She was presented with a choice. Given reasons in favor of the choice, yes. Okay, she added on to the initial commandment by saying she couldn't touch it. Um, maybe, although you know, if God says don't eat of this tree, it's probably not, not good news to. Play around with it, right? Look at it, fondle it, right? Uh, think, boy, that looks delicious, right? I mean, that would, that would be, and that's important, right? We're talking about overcoming temptation, right? This is one of the uh, things we need to keep in mind, right? If you're trying to you know, not, uh, not eat too much, probably a good idea not to stand there in front of the fridge with the door open for too long, right? Um, yeah. Okay, good. Yeah, so we'll talk about that, right? I mean, this idea of, of whether what's right for one person is wrong for another person. Um, um, that's, I think we want to be careful here that we don't um, fall into sort of a full-blown moral relativism where we think that there are some actions that are just simply, um, or that no action is, is wrong for everyone. Um, but at the same time, I do think uh, there's, there's something true about this insight that there are some things that are going to be tempting for some people that aren't going to be tempting for others, right? Um, and, uh, and 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 in this particular case, it looks like maybe there was... Look, it's, it's, not, it's not clear in the narrative of the Garden of Eden what was wrong about eating fruit, right? I mean, we don't, we don't really get the whole story about what was wrong here about eating this fruit. It, we just know that God said, don't do it, right? He said, don't do it, right? And, and, um, and so we can speculate a little bit and try to say, well, what might have been wrong? They call it the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? Maybe that has something to do with it, right? But... Um, but, but it, but we know that it was wrong. <laughs> and we know that Adam and Eve both knew that it was wrong. Um, and that God had said it was wrong. Um, and, uh, and so, so that's, that's an interesting question, um, which, which we'll get back to. So these are all really, really good insights. I think, um, I, I think you're all drawing out a lot of really interesting stuff about temptation out of this one uh, short passage of the original temptation in the garden. One, the one, I think, really important lesson that we can get away from this um, passage which some of you started to touch on in your responses, is this. Temptation makes a sinful action, thought, or desire appear good. It distorts our spiritual vision. You want to tempt somebody to do something wrong, you don't go and tell them, hey, this is wrong, you should want to do it. You don't, right? What you do is you try to get them to see that it's not wrong, that it might be good, that there might be something to be gained, right? That there might be some truth it, right? You, you present to them some attractive thing about the tempting object or the tempting situation or the tempting opportunity, right? Temptation doesn't come to us dressed as temptation. It doesn't come to us dressed as evil, right? It comes to us dressed as good, right? You think, oh yeah, that does seem good. I should do that, right? How could it be wrong if it feels so right? Right? It feels right. It distorts our spiritual vision, right? We see something and we, we focus on the, the good aspect of it, right? That's what Satan's doing when he's talking to Eve, right? He's he's trying to help her to see, oh, but there's a good thing here, right? Knowledge of good and evil, right? God's trying to keep goodness from you. And folks, focuses her attention on on the good, the attractiveness, right, of the action of eating. And he didn't say come on, just do it, right? You don't worry about God. Don't worry about what God said. Just, you know, you should actually want to do wrong things. That's what you should do. You should want to do bad things. said He said, no, this is going to be good for you, right? And that's the way that temptation gets presented to us. That's really, really important to notice that. The temptation comes dressed as good right? Not, not as evil. And, and if you want to be really good at tempting somebody to do something, you get really good at displaying the attractiveness of it to them. Getting them to focus their eyes away from the fact that it's disobedience to God, away from the fact that it's bad, and toward the fact that it's good, that there might be something to be gained from it. Right? Yeah. Question? It
1: strikes me that uh, one aspect of it. That the temptation is usually short term, right in front of your eyes. Yes. The longer term obedience isn't so
0: clear to your vision. Yeah, sometimes that's the case. Oftentimes that's the case. So there's this sort of short term, long term, right? In fact, a psychologist, so I'm not a psychologist, but I'm a philosopher who works in philosophical psychology. And so I read lots of empirical psychology and try to make some sense of it and talk to psychologists. Um, but I don't do experiments, right? I don't uh, hand out surveys to undergraduates in intro to psych classes. Uh, see what they think about these things, right? I leave that for the psychologists to do. Um, uh, but, uh, but, but, I, but I do work on this, and the psychologists who work on temptation, many of them think of temptation as short-term versus long-term goal setting, right, and goal conflict, right? They think what, what a temptation really is, is it's a sort of short-term gain where you sacrifice some long-term goal or commitment of yours. Um, I'm, I'm not sure that captures every instance of temptation, but it certainly seems to be something that's pretty uh, uh, that's pretty common in temptation experiences. Right? We talked about this idea of sort of struggling between your sort of core commitments, your core goals, what you really deeply care about as a human being, and these other you know appetites or drives or inclinations that would pull you away from those things. And so I think that's the idea. That's the, the experience that they're getting at. Um, and sometimes I think we can capture that in terms of long-term versus short-term, but in other cases it's, it's not quite so clear that there's a temporal relationship between those. But I think that's a really good insight. Certainly that was the case here, right? Um, short-term gain. Although you might think that what Satan was offering Eve was a kind of long-term gain, right? You have knowledge of good and evil, right? This is something that's going to be really good for you, right? And God's trying to keep this really good thing from you, right? Um... Good. Okay, so Luke 4, uh, 1 through 13. Who's got that passage? Yes. Thank you. We read that for us?
1: And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, the man of the stone to be on bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him and chose him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of the time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you, then, will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him
0: until an opportune time. Okay. What can we learn about temptation from that yeah. passage, about Jesus' temptation? Yes. Yeah. No one is
1: excluded.
0: No one is excluded, yeah. I mean Jesus himself was tempted. Yeah. Ah, attacked by Satan when we're the weakest. Tempted when we're the weakest. Yeah, why was Jesus weak? He'd been in the desert for 40 days fasting. This is like near lethal fasting. I mean, you can, you can almost die. Right? Some people have done it. Uh, fasted for 40 days. But it's, you're, you're, you're really, really hungry at that point. Right? I mean, that's an understatement, right? I mean, you are, you are uh, uh, about as weak as you can get. Um, uh, short, short of being on your deathbed at that point. Uh, and here's Jesus facing these temptations uh, from Satan uh, at that, in that sort of weak state. Yes, um, I saw a hand up here. Yeah? Um, Jesus countered Satan using Scripture. When they quoted it
1: rightly, Satan also used Scripture, but he twisted.
0: Right, so, so Satan used Scripture to try to tempt Jesus. And Jesus quoted Scripture back at him, right, to respond to the temptation. What does that tell you about Satan's temptation of Jesus, that he's using Scripture? Remember the Genesis passage. What's he doing to Jesus? He's, he's trying to make him see the good, right? He's saying, look, Scripture says the angels will keep you from stubbing your toe, Right? Throw yourself off, right? Prove Scripture right. This is an opportunity for you to show that God is real, right? Come on, Jesus. That is what you want, isn't it? To show that God is real, show that Scripture is true, right? Fulfill prophecy. He's, He's doing everything he can to get Jesus to see that it might be good for him to turn this stone into bread or to throw himself off the pinnacle. That's what he's doing. He's trying to distort Jesus' spiritual vision. But guess what? (laughs) Was it successful? No, because Jesus' vision of tempting opportunities was informed by Scripture. His spiritual vision was so sharpened by his understanding of Scripture, by his knowledge of God's Word, right? He was God's Word (laughs) in flesh, right? That when he was presented with these opportunities, what did he immediately see? Did he see, right? Was, he, was, he, was his vision shifted to see the good of these opportunities? No. He immediately saw, but this would be to disobey God's commandments. This would be to put the Lord your God to the test, right? That's what he saw, right? He, he didn't miss it the way Eve did in the garden, right? The way Adam did in the garden. His spiritual vision was too focused on the truth, right? It was too attentive to the truth. He saw what was wrong about these opportunities. He saw what was sinful about them. and So he wasn't misled to see just the good, the good aspects of them. I think that's a really important point for us as we're trying to think about how we might overcome temptation in our own lives. Yes. Good, yeah, really interesting point here. So he said um, uh, resisting temptation requires wisdom because it looks like in this case you could rewrite this passage and if Jesus is just out in the desert and he turns a stone into bread because he's hungry, maybe there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's hard to say exactly what would be wrong with that. After all, he did multiply like loaves and fishes, right, on multiple occasions, right? I mean, what what was so wrong about turning the stone into bread? Here's what I think was wrong about it. And, And I don't think many commentators... Um, say this, or notice this um, notice this uh, 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 relationship, but um, remember this passage from the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus is talking about asking God for things, and won't he give them to you? He says this, he says, which of you fathers, right, though you're sinful, though you're bad people, which of you, if your son asked you for a bread, would give him? I think what's going on here in the desert is that Jesus is out there fasting as a spiritual discipline. And he knows, he knows that if he wants bread, if he needs bread, God will provide it. The way he provided manna for the Israelites in the desert. Right? Jesus knows that. And in this instance, I think, because of this practice, this spiritual discipline of fasting that he's committed himself to, I think for him... To turn the stone into bread, use his power, right? The way he did turning water into wine at the wedding, which was not wrong, right? It was a miracle. It was a good thing. If he had used that power here, he wouldn't have been trusting in the provision of his father. He had set out to do this fast and said, God, I'm relying on you for my provision, right? Right? So what Satan is doing here is he's tempting him to do something that's not wrong in and of itself, but because of the context, right, because of what he's committed to, this fast in the desert, it would have been a kind of lack of trust, a lack of reliance on his good heavenly father who would give him bread and not a stone if he asked for it. Good. So how about um, the Hebrews passage? Oh, I've already put it up there. Sorry about that. Um, so, uh, so Hebrews two seventeen through eighteen and four fourteen through sixteen. Will you read us those passages? good thank you very much so i've put up here i think what we can learn from these passages is that jesus suffered imputation and that because he suffered imputation he sympathizes with our physical and maybe even our spiritual weaknesses He he gets it. He knows what it is to feel the struggle of temptation. He knows what it is to have Satan telling him, but look, wouldn't it be so good to not have to die on the cross? Surely you could accomplish God's plan some other way that's far less painful. Jesus didn't say to Satan, oh, well, you know, I don't really care about death because I know I'm going to be raised from the dead, right?
1: No. I mean,
0: Jesus was a human being. He didn't want to die. He didn't want to be hung on a cross any more than you or I would. It hurt him just as much as it would hurt one of us. And Satan's saying to him, now we're not talking about the desert uh, temptation anymore, but the Garden of Gethsemane temptation. right? Where Jesus is, 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 he's, he is sweating blood. He's, I mean, he is intensely upset and, and, and scared, right? That this is not going to be a good time. And he knows it, right? And Satan's trying to show him, right? But wouldn't it be so good if you didn't have to go through this? Yes, it would. Yes, it would. But Jesus never loses sight of the importance of obeying the Father. Right? He never loses sight. He never says, oh yeah, that would be good. I really wouldn't. I do wish I could just, you know, call down armies from heaven and end this right now. No, for our sake, for the sake of our sin, for the sake of forgiving us, for the sake of being the sacrificial lamb, the pure, spotless sacrificial lamb who would die on our behalf, he went through with even the most agonizing punishment and death for us. Didn't let Satan distract his spiritual vision, right? And because he suffered, he could sympathize with us. He knows what it is to feel that. He knows what it is to feel the pull of, yeah, but that is really attractive, right? But it's, but it's not if you see that it's disobedience to, to your heavenly Father, right? If you see it that way, and right? if you see the apple in the garden, right? Uh, using the apple figuratively, of course, we don't know if it was an apple, right? But if you see that fruit in the garden as an opportunity to disobey your father who's given you this great, beautiful garden and provided you with everything that you need, right? It doesn't look so good anymore. Right? It doesn't look so good. Okay, how about first Corinthians ten thirteen? Who's got that one? Yeah, will you read that for us? Thank you. Good. So this one's pretty straightforward. What do we learn from this passage? Yeah. There's always a way out, there's a way out right? There's, there's no temptation that's so strong that we can't overcome it. Right? There's no temptation. Not even the temptation of death, right? Not even the temptation to deny God in order to save our own lives, to preserve our own lives, right? Even that temptation can be overcome, as the martyrs show us, as Jesus shows us. Yeah. Okay, good, good, good. Yeah, so, so um, the suggestion was made that the temptation feels stronger when we feel isolated, right? Um, that it, it feels like it loses its strength when we have someone who is there with us in the midst of it, right? And this passage tells us we do have somebody who's there with us in the midst of it, even when we feel most alone, maybe. God's there. He's gonna provide a way out. And Jesus experienced similar kinds of suffering and endured. We can trust in that. But having others within the community of the church Uh, There gives us that extra bit of strength sometimes that we need. That's a really nice uh, point which we'll uh, come back to too. So no temptation is uh, too strong to overcome with God's help. Now how about James 1, 13-14? Who's got that passage? Yeah, bring it back. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. God doesn't tempt you, right? We're tempted by our own desires. Interestingly, I think one implication of this is that what tempts one person might not tempt another. Right? I'm not tempted by all the same things that you are. Right? I'm not tempted to sin in all the same things that you are, or the same ways that you are. Right? We're all different different desires. We have different. We also have different inclinations to be willing to see certain things as good and certain things as bad, right? Our spiritual vision has sort of been trained in different ways, right? And so, it may be that um, you know, for me, I'm, I'm tempted to yell at my children in anger, right? Maybe you all are more gentle than that, right? Um, maybe you all are tempted to sin in other ways, right? Maybe to feel envious uh, at your colleagues or, um, uh, your peers who have things a little better than you do. Maybe you're tempted um, uh, by, by, by food. Uh, maybe you're tempted to eat greedily instead of gratefully. Um, uh, this is a problem many, many of us, I think, have. Uh, even, even the most slender of us, I think, uh, tend to uh, maybe in our culture eat more greedily than we should. Eat as a source of security, comfort, and wealth, right? as opposed to as a gift from God, right? manna from heaven. Um, that's there being provided for us. We think, well, we we only, we earned it. We made our money, and we can spend it however we want, can't we? That's our hand in that hand. Good. God allows us to be tempted. Yeah. God allowed Jesus to be tempted. In fact, it's a little tricky, but in that passage in Hebrews that we just read, Hebrews 2, it says this is, this is what Jesus needed to be made perfect. Right? Almost as though the temptation was required for him to get to the point of perfection. Right? The resistance, the struggle through temptation was required for that moral and spiritual growth perhaps. Yeah. Okay,
1: good. And
0: that that Jesus, Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is tricky, I think, right? So in the Luke passage, Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't look like the temptation is coming from some evil desire within Jesus, right? He's saying God can't be tempted, and yet God incarnate was tempted. Right, and here he's saying that temptation comes from our sinful desires, but of course Jesus didn't have any sinful desires, right? And so, how do we reconcile these? This is this is a little bit tricky theologically, I think, um, to try and reconcile these passages. I I think um, uh, that that's one of the reasons why I want I wanted you to see this about temptation: that temptation appeals to our our the good in something, right? It sort of gets us to focus on the good in it, right? And so it may have been, yeah, it would have been good for Jesus to. Eat. <laughs> there was a sense in which that would have been really good for him, right? Physically, that would have really gave him his strength back and helped him, right? Um, and of course, he needed to eat as a human being, right? It's not like he had some magic, you know, magical powers, right? That he didn't need to eat like the rest of us do. No, he needed to eat. He needed to sleep, right? Um, he needed water, and so, and, and so. There's a sense in which the devil is, is, is appealing to Jesus' vision of the good here right and he's really trying to work hard quoting scripture and everything to try and get Jesus to see this as a good opportunity as opposed to a bad one right um, and so how do we make that fit with this idea that we're tempted by our our, our sinful desires right I mean how, how can we how can we make sense of that it does look like there's a little bit of a tension here right I mean it may be that it may be that certainly there are desires that are themselves sinful I think that's right But I also think that oftentimes temptation comes to us through desires that aren't necessarily sinful. Maybe sort of morally neutral, spiritually neutral desires, right? Desires for things like food or water, relationships, or uh, maybe excellence, right? Desires to be excellent, right? There's nothing wrong with this, right? It's when that, get, that desire gets distorted, right? It's when we take that desire and then we sort of shift our focus on somebody and say, oh, this would be an opportunity for me to pursue excellence, right? And we don't see that in the process we would be really hurting some people, right? Um, Here would be an opportunity for me to feel safe and secure and wealthy, and, but we don't see that in the process we would be um, failing to trust, failing to place our faith in God for his provision of our daily bread. Yeah, it's a hand.
1: Yeah, um, Maybe also just this idea of fixation so that even if I'm pursuing something that's valuable or good, say providing my family or something like that, that if I become so focused on that thing that I lose sight of God or my relationship with God or my obligations towards God, that also would be simple.
0: Yeah, good. So a uh, so, uh, uh, too, too fixated of a focus on something that's good, right? So we take something that's good and we, and we distort it, right? By, by getting it out of order, right? And so this is um, a lot of the, the Christian fa- the church fathers who have talked about these things, talk about them in terms of disordered desires, right? In fact, the whole tradition of the seven deadly sins, right? The reason why those were picked out, right, by these desert fathers, the early centuries of the Christian church as being particularly bad for us, right? It's because they were these pervasive desires that they found themselves with, getting out of order, right? And they were desires for good things. Food, right? Relationships, glory, excellence. These are all good things to desire. But not when they get out of order, right? Not when they're not ordered by love for God and love for neighbor. The greatest command. If we're not informed in our desires by our love for God and our love for our neighbor, these desires for otherwise good things can get out of order and, and become even deadly, spiritually deadly. That was the, where they got this from. So um, Galatians 6.1, who's got that last passage? Yes. Good. The reason why I wanted us to read this passage is that there's something I think very important. It's very simple, but it's very important that gets communicated in this passage. I think oftentimes Christians think, especially Christians who have a healthy appreciation of the role of the Holy Spirit in spiritual formation, right? They think, well, if you want to overcome temptation, here's what you do. Please, God, don't let me be tempted. And please, if I am tempted, help me to have the strength not to give in to that temptation. Done. Now I'm going to pray that again tomorrow, and I'm going to pray it again the next day, right? And that's all that I'm going to do. All says something here, I think very important. What does he say to do? What does he say? Keep Keep watch. Keep watch. He doesn't just say pray that God wouldn't tempt you, or pray that God wouldn't allow you to be tempted. He doesn't just say pray that God would give you the strength to overcome temptation when it comes. He says Keep watch. He suggests that there is something we can do. Right? We have a role to play in this. Yes? That's right, so it's adding to this idea of discernment and wisdom. We need discernment and wisdom, and guess what? One way to get discernment and wisdom is to pray that God would give it to you. Another way to get discernment and wisdom is to try and do some things to cultivate it yourself, right? Right. God's given us opportunities, ways to cultivate these things, right? And that's what I want to focus on over the next couple of weeks in this class is what can we do? Surely we should pray. We should rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. We can't do this on our own. But that doesn't, you know, this is like the, the famous story of the guy who's out, and, out at sea in the boat, right? And he says, you know, God, save me from this storm that's blowing in, right? And somebody comes up to the boat and says, hey, I'll pull you in. He says, no, 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 God's going to save me, right? God, please save me from this storm. I'm trusting you. I'm putting all my faith in you. Save me through the storm. Somebody else rows by and says, hey, buddy, you got to get out of this lake here, right? There's a, there's a storm coming in, right? Can I pull you in? He says, no, 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 Right? Another guy comes by, hey, let me help you in. He says, no, no, God's going to save me, right? And he dies. Alas. And then he's in heaven and says to God, why didn't you save me? I sent three guys to pull you in. What else did you want, right? There was an opportunity for you, right? And so what are those opportunities? That's what I want us to focus on. What things are God, what has God provided us? Maybe he's even provided us something. Maybe we can even rely on contemporary psychology to help us here. Right? Spiritually, maybe it's a tool that we can put to use for our spiritual growth. Maybe we can use philosophy and use it as a tool to put toward our spiritual growth. Maybe he's given us minds to think and to figure stuff out so that we can actually work on this stuff w- while relying on him. Jesus didn't just show up in the desert and say, God, please help me to get through this temptation. No, there's a reason why he had scripture memorized, Right? Hours and hours of prayer and meditation on scripture. In isolation and loneliness, right? In silence and in solitude, Jesus engaged in these spiritual disciplines. He was ready because he had trained himself. He had had engaged in practices that helped him to prepare. Disciplines that helped him to prepare. He was ready for those temptations. His spiritual vision was well-trained. It was well-formed so that he didn't get misled. He, He wasn't easily blinded by Satan's temptations to show him how good these opportunities were. We want to do the same. We can follow that example. And so that's the question, is, is how. You have a question there, Will? Okay, yeah.
1: Scripture also
0: invites us to be open to feedback from other people. who might have insight into our
1: situation. We can see or we can give us advice. Or we
0: can look for people we trust and say, Good, okay. Scripture invites us to be open to the guidance of other people. This is a great strategy, right? for and learning discernment and wisdom hang out with discerning and wise people right? and be honest with them about yourself be honest with them about yourself so that they can give you the right kind of advice right this is really good advice right it's, it's, it's not rocket science right it's just, this is this is good advice right okay so how can we overcome temptation i want to suggest that there are what i want to call spiritual strategies for identifying and avoiding temptation. These, I think, are fairly familiar to most of us. Um, To most of us who have grown up in the church, in the evangelical church, I think these these are pretty common. You start talking about temptation and people are gonna say things like this, right? Ooh, I messed up my animations, they both came up. Watchfulness and confession, right? So watchfulness, remember Paul said keep watch, right? Here's one thing that you can do if you wanna figure out how to avoid temptation, you wanna develop discernment, you wanna develop divi- wisdom. A lot of it's gonna to have to do with self-knowledge, insight about yourself. What, what kinds of inclinations do you have, right? How are you tempted? What tempts you to sin, right? That requires a kind of self-knowledge, a kind of insight that really is particular to each individual, right? So he says, keep watch. This is what, I, I mentioned the Desert Fathers who came up with the Seven, uh, seven Deadly Sins tradition. Um, those desert fathers, what they did is they left the Roman Empire because they thought it was just too tempting. Right? There was just too many, too many sources of temptation, too much moral and spiritual temptation, causing them to not live the way they were supposed to live—holy and pure lives for God. And so they retreated out into the desert, into these little communities. Right? These little communities of Christians. And one of their regular practices was watchfulness. They kept watch over their thoughts, over their desires. They would actually spend every day, right? They would go about their day and be like, oh, that thing made me feel this way. And just sort of make a mental note, right? Write it down. Journal it, right? And then they would confess these things to each other. And I'd say, well, this week, this, this happened to me. And look, I, something good happened to somebody who's my friend, and I felt bad about it. Why did I feel bad? Why did I not like it that something good happened to them? I wonder, Right? And this is how they figured out that envy is kind of a problem that we, many of us struggle with, right? Good things happen to people we care about and we love, and then we go, oh, man, that makes me feel bad about me because it didn't happen to me, right? That makes me feel like they're better than me. They're one-upping me, right? And, ah, that's a bad thing. I should watch out for that, right? Keep watch, right? How did I desire this food when I was fasting, right? Well, what did I think about when I was, you know, here I was, I was trying to meditate on scripture and I kept thinking about this other thing. I kept getting distracted, right? They'd pay attention to those things and then they'd confess them to each other (laughs) and they'd say, so how might I overcome this, right? What can I do to try and fix this problem? What is this problem and what might I do to fix it? So watchfulness is important and confession goes hand in hand with watchfulness, right? Because now you've taken these things, right? And then you confess them to each other, right? We can do this corporately in the context of you know our, our congregational worship but we can also do this you know in terms of relationships close relationships that we have mentoring relationships right i have a spiritual mentor a spiritual guide um, friend, close friends uh, we, can, we can do this with each other right test here's the thoughts that i had here's the feelings that i had here's the desires that i had this week i was keeping very close track right? um, i found that when my kids did this i got really more angry than i should have <laughs> I wonder why, right? What, what was prompting that? Where's that coming from? Why am I getting so angry at my kids for this, right? Um, confessing these things to each other can be an important part of giving us that communal support, um, but also helping us to keep track, right? And, and notice um, what our own temptations are. And then, of course, this uh, popular idea of accountability, right, where we we're part of, part of uh, one of the ways we can encourage ourselves to do this kind of confession is to say, hey, you, you're my friend. <laughs> Right? Ask me. <laughs> right? I might forget to confess to you, but ask me. Right? Ask me how my week went. <laughs> Let's sit down and have coffee, and you ask me. Right? What can I, what, how am I doing? What am I thinking about? What am I feeling? Right? How did the week go? Did you ever get angry too much? Did you ever feel envy? Did you ever um, you know, get, uh, get jealous? Did you, did you eat gratefully? Right? Did, did you express your gratitude? feel greedy, um, right? Were you generous? These kinds of things. This is pretty typical, right? I think most of these are pretty familiar to many of us, right? These are pretty common practices that are encouraged within the evangelical church, and we're not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about them. They are good strategies, though. They're helpful. Um, But what I want to focus on for the the next couple of weeks are what I want to call spiritual strengths for overcoming temptation. And if you want... um, Something really great to read uh, on this is this little little book called The Strengths of a Christian um, by Robert C. Roberts. Um, He's a recently retired professor at Baylor University. Um, And uh, he's written this great little book on spiritual strengths. And he's focused on three three spiritual strengths. Self-control, patience, and perseverance. What are these strengths? And how can we cultivate them? That's what we're going to be focusing on for the next couple of weeks. What, what is self-control? What is it to be a self-controlled person? Right? And what can we do? What are some practices we can engage in that might actually help us to develop self-control? What is patience? How can we develop patience? What is perseverance? How can we develop that in the face of temptation? And how might these strengths give us that ability right, to overcome temptation, to resist temptation when we're found with it? Um, that's what we're going to be focusing on for the next couple of weeks. I'll say just a few brief words about um, self-control this morning. And uh, we, uh, we won't get through everything uh, that I had to say about self-control. But that's okay, because we'll focus on it uh, next time. Um, but I want to give you just a couple of, a couple of quick uh, thoughts about self-control. And then we'll pick up uh, next week. So, one thing that contemporary psychology has taught us about self-control... And uh, here's, here's, here's a nice book if you're interested in um, uh, doing a little bit of reading. This is sort of one of these books in, in the uh, genre of um, popular psychology, right? It's sort of like psychology made digestible. Um, so, you know, these books hit the New York Times bestseller list, right? Because they're all going to tell us how to fix ourselves. Um, I, think, uh, I think there's some real value in it. I say that sort of jokingly, but I do think there's some real value in it. And one of the things that uh, the psychologist Roy Baumeister um, has discovered through decades of, of psychological studies is that it looks like self-control is like a muscle. It can be strengthened through repeated use and temporarily depleted when it is put to work. Interestingly, one of the ways in which it can be depleted, this muscle of self-control, is hunger. Think about Jesus' temptation in the desert, right? Here he was. Basically, he put himself in a position to have just about as little self-control as one can and still overcame temptation, right? We should be amazed by that. Because all it takes is missing a little bit of a meal, right? To start making you get grumpy and angry with people.
1: Right?
0: Start lashing out at your coworkers, right? Start saying nasty things to your spouse or your children, right? Under your breath, right? Um, that's all it takes. Just, just one meal, right? Jesus went 40 days and still didn't send um, but it also looks like it can be strengthened. So they tell this interesting story about David Blaine, the magician. I don't know if any of you have seen this magician on TV, David Blaine. He does these sort of crazy endurance experiments. Uh, uh, um, tr- they're not tricks. I mean, he just, he's, he's an endurance artist, right? He'll he'll. He'll lock himself in ice, right? He'll actually be frozen for, like, two weeks and not eat, right? I mean, he'll stand on top of a pole in the middle of a city park for several days, right, with nothing to eat and just stand up there, right? Um, uh, he does all kinds of crazy things like this. Um, David Blaine, right, as he's getting ready to do some of these, um, uh, some of these, uh, 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 I keep wanting to call them experiments. They're not experiments. They're, 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 they're shows, right? Right? Um, what, he'll, he'll do all kinds of strange things, like, um, like he'll try to like, step on every third crack as he's walking down the street. He'll, every, you know, after 10 steps, he'll reach out and touch something. Or he does all kinds of little things right, to gain control over himself. What he's doing is he's practicing the muscle, right? he's exercising the muscle of self-control. Right? And that, he thinks, helps him to engage in these incredible feats of self-control. right because it's like like working out. It's like working out this little muscle of self-control. So one thing that I want to suggest to you, uh, oh, and here's something that William James, who's one of our our country's uh, first uh, uh, psychologists, right? Uh, He says, keep the faculty of effort alive in you by a little gratuitous exercise every day. That is, be systematically ascetic or heroic in little unnecessary points. Do every day or two something for no other reason than that you would rather not do it so that when the hour of dire need draws nigh, it may find that you're not unnerved and untrained to stand the test. Right? So look, you, you, you want some dessert, and you think, well, maybe I'm just going to say no this time. Not, for any, not because I'm trying to lose weight, not because you know, it would be bad for me, just because I'm trying to exercise my self-control, right? I'm trying to give my self-control a little bit of a workout here, right? says, so yeah, just do that every day or two, right? Just, just something little, right? Do something little so that you just sort of exercise that self-control. Oh, I really want to check my phone to see what's going on on Facebook. But I'm just not going to, right? Not because it would be bad. Not because I'm, you know, struggling with the temptation of, you know, Facebook addiction or something. It's just because that little bit of exertion of self-control might make me able to exert self-control when I really need it to resist temptation. It's Just a practical suggestion about how to strengthen this muscle of self-control. So I would, I would suggest to you, and I've got, I've got a few um, extra notes on here, I'll just go ahead and put them all up, but I, I, I want to focus on this last point here. I think a Lenten fast is one spiritual practice or discipline or exercise that can help strengthen our self-control muscles and sharpen our spiritual vision. I think that's one of the things that a Lenten fast is good for. I think that's one of the things that fasting is good for. Yes, it help us, helps us to focus our attention on God. It helps us to focus our attention on Jesus. It helps us to focus our attention on the passion of Christ. It helps us to um, focus our, our, our attention on the fact that God provides everything for us, right? That he's the ultimate giver of all the manna that we have in this life, right? Um, but I think it also is an important practice to engage in just because it helps us to strengthen our self-control, right? Helps us to get a little bit of self-mastery, a little bit of control over ourselves, why regular fasting has been a practice in the church for its entire history right because there's something about just saying no to food for one meal or a certain kind of food that you desire once a week there's something about that that just helps you to develop this strength this sort of mastery over yourself right where you're not given into every desire and inclination that you have right oh i've got a desire to check my phone so i have to right I can't say no, or I've got the desire to eat something, so I'm gonna go do it. I know dinner's gonna be on the table in 10 minutes, but I just really want a snack, so I'm gonna to go to the pantry and get some crackers. Interestingly, the folks who wrote on gluttony said one of the problems with doing that, that's actually a form of gluttony, by the way, that's a, that's a manifestation of gluttony. Eating too soon, not, not being willing to wait until the food is on the table, right? It's snacking, right? One of the reasons that's bad, really isn't very kind to the person who's doing the cooking, is it? I know you've been making dinner for the last 45 minutes, but I just can't wait five more, so I'm going to grab some goldfish out of the kid's snack bowl. Eat them right? Because I just can't wait five more minutes for this really nice meal that you've been preparing for me. I'd rather ruin my appetite. With cheap snack food. Not very loving, is it? <laughs> Seems like I care more about having something in my mouth than showing you that I care about you, right? That's one of the reasons they said this is, this is bad. So I think Lenten fast is one of these things that we can do. It's one of these practices that we can engage in that can help us to strengthen our self-control, right? Help us to strengthen that muscle. Okay, we'll talk more about, uh, about Lenten fast next time and have a little bit of discussion. Uh, I'd like to end today um, by saying this Lenten prayer together. So we said this on the first Sunday of Lent, and I think it's a particularly appropriate prayer given our topic of conversation over the next few weeks. Um, so if you would, uh, let's end by, uh, by praying praying this and turn your heart over to God and ask Him to help. So, Almighty God, His blessed Son was led by the Spirit to be tempted by Satan. Come quickly to help us who are assaulted by many temptations. And as you know the weaknesses of each of us, let each one find you mighty to save. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Alright, thank you. Hope to see you back next week.